Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Monday, December 4th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. A special welcome to our new listeners and viewers. Thank you so much for joining us. It's day 59. Uh, on Friday morning, the week-long pause came to an end, and as we've seen over the weekend, Israel restarted its slaughter and escalated the scale of its massacres. On Saturday, Israeli airstrikes leveled entire city blocks, destroying dozens and dozens of apartment buildings and continued targeting paramedics and ambulances while pushing Palestinians into smaller areas of the southern Gaza Strip. At least 800 Palestinians have been killed since Israel restarted its carpet bombings. Today, the Israeli army radio confirmed that the army has launched a ground operation in Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, in an interview with Al Jazeera, Salah al-Aruri, the deputy head of Hamas's Politburo, said that there would be no negotiations with Israel or additional prisoner exchanges until after its current aggression on Gaza is over. He said that Hamas has stayed true to its pledges made from the beginning to release foreign nationals and women and children, and that the remaining captives being held in Gaza are, quote, soldiers and former soldiers. However, the Palestinian resistance is continuing to fight, with the Qassam Brigade saying that they have destroyed at least 28 Israeli armored vehicles in just the last 24 hours. We'll have plenty more details about the resistance later on in the show with our friend Abdul Jawad Omar back to talk about the increasingly brutal situation in the occupied West Bank as well, and what's next, and of course, military analysis with John Elmer. Siwar uh, El-Ejla sadly cannot join us today, but we'll be sure to have her back on the show very soon. But first, we wanted to discuss some of the most pervasive propaganda we're seeing. And I just want to warn our viewers and listeners that we're going to be talking about sexual assault. So please take appropriate caution. Ali, you've been looking at a disturbing set of allegations Israel has been making uh, regarding mass sexual assault and rape by Hamas fighters on October 7th. Um, I understand there are some new developments around that that could help provide a framework for people to understand what they're being fed by corporate media and the Israeli government. What do we know and what are you looking at right now? Yeah, there's some really nasty stuff circulating and I really want to break it down for, for people who are, are watching. First, I mean, let's just remind people, we've talked quite a few times uh, over the last few weeks about all the lies and deceptions surrounding what happened on and after October 7th. And from the very start, Israel and its supporters have spread really inflammatory lies. You'll recall the infamous tale of the uh, 40 beheaded babies. That was a horrific lie that uh, President Biden keeps repeating uh, despite advice from his own staff that there was actually no evidence for it. And in fact, there is no evidence for it. It's, uh, it's a lie. Uh, and indeed, uh, according to Haaretz, uh, the Israeli newspaper, uh, only one baby was killed on October 7th. And um, as you can see here from uh, the uh, journalist Mohammed Shahadeh, uh, he's pointing to a very recent Haaretz story over the weekend, uh, debunking some of these early uh, 
what he calls iconic horror stories from October 7th. So the, the 40 beheaded babies, there was also the story of a baby burned in an oven, a pregnant woman's stomach opened and her fetus removed, children bound together and burned, and a pregnant hostage uh, giving birth. Many of these atrocity stories people will have heard, and they were circulated not just by media and pro-Israel uh, uh, people on social media, but also by the Israeli government itself. Uh, and uh, now Haaretz is admitting that uh, many of them were fake, and it's actually tracing how these fake stories made it into the in, into the mainstream. So that's just some some context. Um, let's talk a little bit more about how these stories are disseminated and what role the media, especially Western media, uh, has been playing in um, in uh, circulating these you know propaganda stories. Yeah, that, that's really one of the most disturbing aspects of all this, the way media have amplified these horrifying propaganda tales without even asking uh, Israel for a shred of evidence. They just accept everything Israel says. For example, for weeks, they've parroted Israel's claims that uh, 1,400 people were killed on October 7th. That was the number we heard constantly. Then about two weeks or so ago, uh, Israel reduced the number from 1,400 to 1,200 after admitting that hundreds of burned bodies it initially claimed were Israelis burned by Hamas were actually Palestinians incinerated by indiscriminate Israeli fire. And now uh, Israel seems to have uh, reduced the number yet again uh, down to about a thousand. This is a tweet over the weekend from one of the Israeli government's official accounts. And you can see we've gone there from 1,400 to 1,200 and now to, to a thousand. And I haven't seen any, any explanation why that number is dropping. But you still don't see uh, mainstream media in the West really asking any questions, even when there has been Revelation after revelation, mostly coming from uh, Israel itself, uh, about how Israel killed many of its own people on October 7th. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about that uh, in previous live streams. And, of course, we've covered that very extensively at the Electronic Intifada. But despite all these revelations of lies and false stories uh, and a truth very different from what Israel says it is, uh, it, it's happening all over again. Um, how? How is this happening again? And um, and who are the players behind this? Yeah, well, now the big push is, is again with this story of the mass rapes. And now just to be clear, they made these allegations right at the beginning, right on and after October 7th. But there's a renewed push in uh, recent days from Israel and its lobby groups claiming that Hamas fighters... Um, carried out systematic mass rapes as part of their strategy on October 7th. And this is a story, this tweet we see up on the screen uh, is Barry Weiss. She is uh, a longtime pro-Israel propagandist. Uh, we could do a whole show on her, but uh, I, I won't go into much more detail about her today. But she is posting a story from the, um, the Jewish Chronicle, a British newspaper, quoting a supposed eyewitness, I'll come back to later, 
Uh, and you can see there's some really lurid and, and terrible uh, claims that um, citing an alleged eyewitness saying, I saw this beautiful woman with eight or 10 of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it. I'm going to die anyway from what you're doing. Just kill me. And, and she calls these alleged perpetrators uh, savages. And there are other examples of this. There's a story today in the New York Post um, and it draws on pretty much the same sources. By the way, these photos are not of people being raped. They're just inflammatory photos that have been put in there to make you suggest to, to make you think that there's more to this than is actually there. But nobody is alleging that the woman who appeared in that image there is was actually a victim or a survivor of, of sexual assault. It's just, it, again, it shows how images and words are put together in these inflammatory ways. Um, so uh, what I want to say, uh, and then, uh, yeah, the, here's, here's just an example of how this is being pushed at the highest level. Gal Gadot, who is uh, this, this Hollywood uh, actor, uh, not very good from the reviews I've read, but uh, in this role, she's, uh, you know, being, being deployed uh, to, to, to complain that, you know, uh, the silence over the alleged sexual-based violence uh, by Hamas. But the, the key point, and there are many stories like this going back to October 7th, none of them I've actually seen quotes anyone who claims to have been themselves a victim of such an assault. There are always unverified claims from unnamed witnesses, except in the latest claims, which we'll come to later, or their second or third hand stories. And there's a reason for that. And it's because uh, Israeli police say they do not have any victims. No victims. Yeah. So here's a story from CNN on uh, November 19th with the sensational headline, Israel investigates sexual violence committed by Hamas of part, uh, as a part of October 7 horror. That's a pretty uh, uh, awful headline. Um, uh, but right down there in the CNN story, we learn uh, that Israeli police admit that there are no identified victims. It says, uh, police superintendent Dudi Katz said officers have collected more than a thousand statements and more than 60,000 video clips related to the attacks that include accounts from people who reported seeing women raped. He added that investigators do not have first-hand testimony, and it is not clear where any, whether any rape victims survived. And when they say there are uh, 1,000 statements and more than 60,000 video clips, they're referring to all of October 7th, not specifically to rapes. But what they're saying here is that, yeah, we don't have anyone who says they were actually assaulted, which is odd given that they claim that this was a mass strategy with, you know, where it was systematic. Um, and uh, amazingly, not only do they not have any identified victims, but they also have no forensic evidence uh, and so let's take a look at another story. This is from the Times of Israel, uh, and this was published uh, earlier in, in November, on November 9th. And 
actually, I'll say this Times of Israel story is part of a genre. There were, I've seen several stories like this. Uh, there was one in the Times of Israel, this one, another one in uh, Haaretz, and um, there have been similar stories in the Washington Post and other newspapers as well, which, again, start from the premise that uh, there was a huge number of rapes and sexual assaults, but then they're all about explaining why there's no evidence of this. And so this is a good example of that. So um, this particular story in the Times of Israel says, quote, uh, in the wake of the unprecedentedly large mass, ca mass casualty event, physical evidence of sexual assault was not collected from corpses by Israel's overtaxed morgue facilities amid their ongoing scramble to identify the people killed, many of whose bodies were mutilated and burned. And so this article, like some of the others I've mentioned, is full of these little explanations for why they didn't collect any forensic evidence. Although you will find lots of um, claims that, uh, you know, this first responder saw someone, saw a body that looked like they may have been uh, assaulted uh, and so on. But none of these people are, are experts. And... Um, You'll call, you, you see here in this Times of Israel quote, they say many of those bodies are mutilated and burned. And you'll recall, of course, that it later emerged, uh, emerged that at least 200 of those burned bodies were not uh, Israelis or potential Israeli rape victims, but, but Palestinians incinerated by the Israeli military. And uh, you'll also see, Nora, sometimes that there are claims, and you see this a lot on social media, that there are videos or even that Hamas fighters took videos of themselves raping Israeli women. Uh, but I have seen no, uh, I mean, nobody has circulated such a video. And I have seen no re uh, credible reports of videos of actual rapes. What you get instead of these myriad uh, claims that Various, as I mentioned, first responders saw women with blood on them or with injuries that made them think that person could have been sexually assaulted or raped. But none of these people cited in the media accounts are qualified to make such determinations. And um, none that I've seen have come from actual forensic pathologists talking about specific victims. It's all just hearsay and sensational claims and often the so-called witnesses are members of the Israeli army, in other words, members of the organization that is perpetrating genocide against uh, Palestinians. Right, and uh, there are there really are no videos. I mean, this is, you know, they can say that there are, you know, we've seen all these videos, um, you know, the 60,000 uh, different videos from that day, but but there's somehow not one. That right. Shows I, I've evidence. seen no report. I've certainly seen no video of a rape. Thank goodness. That's not something yeah, I, no. I want to see or any of us should want to see. Uh, but I've not even seen really reports now more than two months later, getting up to two months after these events, that such a video exists. And so in recent weeks, Nora, you'll, you'll know, and we've mentioned this before, that Israel has been showing uh, 
uh, I think it's a 45 or 47 minute compilation of videos that it claims depicts atrocities committed by Palestinians on October 7th. And it's shown this documentary to various hand-picked journalists. Mm. One of them is Owen Jones of The Guardian, a nominally left-wing journalist who, uh, as we've reported on the Electronic Intifada, has often been quite willing to pander to Israel and its lobby. And I mention that because, you know, uh, Jones would be someone who I think would, would want to, if he saw something, uh, would want to emphasize uh, that it, it incriminated uh, Palestinians. But last week, uh, Jones attended a screening of uh, this, this uh, video uh, organized by the Israeli military, and then he did his own uh, video talking about it. Here's a clip of what Jones said after watching what we can only presume is the very best evidence Israel can muster for its um, allegations. If living people were beheaded, otherwise, we are not shown that in any of the video footage. If there was torture too, there's no evidence given for it on camera. Now, if there was rape and sexual violence committed, we don't see this on the footage either. Now, a warning here for deeply distressing description, but a clip of an Israeli woman inspecting a badly burned woman's corpse to see if she was a relative. Um, she had no underwear. This has been offered as evidence of rape, but that's not what you would consider conclusive evidence. We don't see children being killed. Hamas don't kill those poor, those two poor little boys, for example, certainly not on camera. And I imagine we would have been told if they had been killed. Now, Yeah, so you can see there from uh, Owen Jones that uh, uh, that video... Uh, in which the the uh, great minds of the Israeli army and government brought together all the best evidence that they could gather uh, doesn't show uh, pretty much any of the things Israel claimed uh, were out there and certainly doesn't show evidence of, of rape. Um, now, of course, people might argue that something like that is simply too hor- horrific to show. And a lot of what Israel has shown or, or claims is from uh, October 7th is very horrific. Um, but the, the videos, if they existed, could have been shown in a way that protected the dignity and the identity of the people involved. Or alternatively, Israel could have shown uh, these videos, again, if they existed to internationally respected and trusted journalists or investigators, Uh, But I've read no accounts that any videos uh, corroborating the claims of rape have been shown to any such uh, trusted viewers. Uh, But despite this lack of evidence over the past couple of days, there has been this renewed push to to propel this uh, mass rape uh, story into uh, the headlines with new supposed eyewitness testimonies. But again, I'm seeing no reports of actual identified victims or or forensic evidence. Right. Um, And who can we identify as behind this push? Um, You know, I mean, we had the, you know, at the very beginning, the 40 beheaded babies, the the babies hung from a clothesline, these like, you know, the stories of uh, evisceration, like horrible, horrible stories that, of course, 
uh, were were debunked, um, and and it was clear that these stories were being fed to the press by certain individuals. What do we know about this story and who's behind it? Right. Well, it's being pushed uh, from a lot of directions. Uh, all those directions originate in Israel and from its lobby, but. One particular name you'll see repeatedly associated with this in recent days is a woman called Kochav El-Kayam Levi. She's being presented, and that's a picture of her, she's being presented uh, as a feminist scholar and international human rights expert who is heading an independent civil commission investigating the alleged use of mass rape as an organized tactic by Hamas fighters on October 7th. And her name is everywhere right now. For example, in this big interview that was published by Haaretz uh, on November 30th. And look at that headline. Uh, the scope of Hamas's campaign of rape against Israeli women is revealed testimony after testimony. And the subheading, uh, uh, which I'll read, the aggregation of evidence collected by Dr. Kochav El-Kayam Levy and her civil commission presents a horrifying picture that leaves no room for doubt. On October 7, Hamas terrorists systematically carried out acts of rape and sexual sexual abuse. I'm gonna, I, I want to come back to these uh, claims uh, in a bit, Nora, especially the headline. But first, I want to, uh, can I talk about who uh, Kochav Eliakim Levy is. Please. So our friends at Mondo Weiss published a really important article uh, focusing on the mass rape allegations uh, in uh, recent days. I think it was on December 1st. Um, and uh, they took as a, a starting point uh, a piece by Jake Tapper or a, a broadcast by Jake Tapper on CNN on his show and I really encourage everyone to read the, the Mondo Weiss uh, piece. Um, and it provides some really crucial information. And I'm just going to, to, to share a little bit of that with you. It says, the CNN report uh, begins with an interview with Kochav El-Kayam Levy. She is identified as an expert in human rights law who organized a civil committee to document evidence. Uh, the speaker is indeed an expert, but not of human rights law. In her former positions, including a post for the Israeli government's attorney general's uh, office in the international law department, she provided the legal justification for Israeli officials committing human rights violations against Palestinians. She had previously published a guidance uh, for policymaking, government officials, and legal advisors in the management of hunger strikes, uh, that she, uh, which provided a detailed legal manual to uh, allow force feeding, a brutal act of torture used to break political prisoners. So in other words, this so-called human rights experts is writing uh, guidance for the Israeli government, uh, government on how to do torture. And Mondo Weiss observes that it were, that CNN considered it appropriate to bring her on as a human rights expert. Um, and they note that um, 
in her interview with CNN, uh, Elia Elkayam Levy presents nothing but justifications for the absence of evidence and facts. So that, again, that's a very similar pattern to these articles I mentioned in the Times of Israel and the Washington Post in Haaretz. And this is really important now. Uh, CNN hides the tight connections between uh, El Kayam Halevi and the national and Israel's National Security Council. El Kayam Levi is also the founder and director of the Dvora Institute, which works as a close advisory body to the Israeli Prime Minister's National Security Council. The advisory committee for the Dvora Institute includes a former director of the Israeli Prime Minister's office and three former officials in the National Security Council. And here's something else I found. El Kayam Levi used to work for the IDF spokespersons unit. Uh, that's in the Haaretz article I showed you a few minutes ago. In other words, she used to do propaganda for the Israeli army. And this all appears to be a typical Israeli propaganda effort run out of or, by, or run by close associates of the Israeli prime minister's office. So, you know, an independent uh, girl boss, feminism expert, um, for sure. Uh, what is she actually claiming? And and in order for her to have um, proposed or exposed these, uh, you know, these horrifying revelations, she, she must have been able to dig up new evidence um, to get so much attention. What's behind this? Well, you would think so. But let's go back to that Haaretz article again for a minute, the one with the sensational headline uh, claiming that uh, the scope of Hamas's campaign of rape against Israeli women is revealed testimony after testimony. Um, well, let's, uh, let's take a look at uh, this uh, highlight of the article pointed out by the excellent propaganda-busting uh, uh, account, Propaganda & Co. Their name is ironic, of course. And uh, they point out that the headline claims that uh, there is testimony after testimony. But the article itself states, thus far the commission, that's the allegedly independent commission headed by El Kayam Levy, thus far the commission has not taken testimony directly. And this is not the only giveaway in this article. Let's go through uh, another example if we, if we can. And this is uh, the type of evidence it uh, allegedly contains. And again, now, now I'm going to read a bit from the Haaretz article. It says, the Shin Bet Security Service, of course, that's Israel's secret police, notorious for its use of torture, uh, has released recordings of at least two investigations of Nukba terrorists. Nukba is the elite unit of the Qassam Brigades, the Palestinian resistance. Uh, so uh, it claims that they've released recordings from Nukba terrorists who were asked whether they had been given specific orders to abuse women and children. Referring to the sex crimes, one of them said that the aim was to soil them, to rape them. A second terrorist related that, quote, the commander said, you have to step on their heads, cut off their heads, do everything to them. Um, 
and again, still reading from Haaretz, a military source cited by the daily Yediot Ahronot noted that the terrorists related that the aim of cutting off heads and rape was to sow fear to sow fear and alarm in the Israeli public. Well, what do you notice about this? First of all, they're citing um, uh, interrogation videos from an agency whose use of torture is very well documented and acknowledged even in Israel and regulated in Israel. They allow uh, a Shin Bet to use torture. Secondly, uh, these, uh, these Palestinian fighters allegedly confessed they were giving or given orders to cut off heads. Uh, and uh, uh, yet there is not a single beheading or, or decapitation that has been uh, documented. So how much credibility can you give this? And then the third thing to notice is this is coming from a military source, a military source. So the accuser here is the army committing genocide. This is not actual evidence. But this is in the Haaretz article claiming testimony after testimony. Um, so now another key part of the spin in the Haaretz article uh, profiling Kochav El-Kayam Levy and her supposedly independent commission is she complains a lot about the fact that independent bodies and even journalists aren't fully buying into this story and are asking for more concrete evidence. For example, even just a rough estimate of the number of victims or whether there's forensic evidence. And so there you see Haaretz asking, have you found yourself becoming a relay station for the horror stories? And she says, this is El-Kayam uh, uh, El -Kayam Levy says, no, I do not go there myself. Even with requests for numbers, I don't cooperate. They ask me, how many, how many, how many? There was one journalist here, a woman from a foreign news network who drove me crazy. Are we talking about tens, hundreds, thousands? I'm sorry, no it would be irresponsible of me to cite a number. So like the journalist there, this, this foreign journalist who, whether they exist or not, we don't know, but if they do, they're asking the right question. Like, are we talking about one victim, 10 victims, 100 victims, 1,000? And El-Kayam Halevi is, is, is talking like it's outrageous to even ask how many victims there are. I mean, what, what's wrong with that question? You could you could say, well, we, we're not 100% sure yet, but we think it's in this way. They won't even give a single number, nothing. Um, and then uh, she makes, then El-Kayam Levy makes another extraordinary statement. Again, this is the same Haaretz article claiming testimony after testimony. And this is what El-Kayam Levy says to explain the fact that no victims have been identified. And I think we can put this quote up on the screen too. Again, this is El-Kayam Levy. She says, uh, uh, yeah, in the case of, um, yeah, she says, in the case of October 7, we'll never know the extent of the damage. We know that the vast majority of those who were harmed were also murdered. So, that's one explanation for why there are no, you know, there were mass rapes, but in this chaotic situation, 
they managed to kill exactly everyone who is subjected to this awful mass rape campaign. If there are survivors among those who are harmed, decades could go by before they uh, gather the courage to talk about it. So, well, there could be living victims, but we might not know that for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. So don't ask about that now. And then she says, in the few cases in which someone else witnessed their suffering, I assume that then two questions will arise as to exactly what he saw and whether he is a reliable witness. I don't intend to participate in that game. Well, when you have an eyewitness, the first thing you, you should ask any responsible person would do, whether they're a journalist or investigator or a court of law, is ask, is this eyewitness credible? And what she's saying here is don't even dare ask those questions. We can say anything or we can put forward anyone and claim they're an eyewitness and you can't uh, uh, question them. In mm -hmm. other words, Nora, we just have to take their word for yeah. everything. Yeah. But why mm -hmm. would we when Israel lies about so much as we've already seen? Right. Uh, are there any other examples um, that we can that we can talk about? Yeah, I, I know we, we've spent a lot of time on this, but there are others if you think we, we yeah. should go through them. Yeah, um, let's do it. So, uh, yeah, I'll just, just go through them quickly. So, Go back to the Mondawais article, a really important article I pointed to earlier. They, in that CNN report by Jake Tapper that they discuss, they, they, there's one example that's talked about where they say that um, the CNN report presents a video of an Israeli soldier showing only his back and identified by the letter G, claiming to be a paramedic of Unit 669, the Israeli Air Force Special Tactics Rescue Unit. And in his testimony, the soldier says that during a search of the houses in Kibbutz Be'eri, uh, he opened the door of a bedroom to find the bodies of two girls aged between 13 and 15, uh, both killed, one of them naked, with semen remains on her lower back. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, these, I'm sorry for these graphic images. That's what he claimed, and he claimed this was during combat. Uh, but as Mondo Weiss notes, upon examining the names of all girls killed in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th, to match the facts, no pair of Israeli teenagers meeting that description were found dead together. There are other problems with this particular example. Uh, that's just one of them. Another being that there, there's no evidence that this Unit 669 was ever in Be'eri. Um, and there's uh, there's also a claim uh, from CNN and other media that uh, th there's one so-called eyewitness who hasn't been named that Israeli police played a recording of at um, a uh, press conference uh, in mid-November. And the recording of this eyewitness claimed that she saw with her own eyes a group of Palestinians raping uh, an Israeli woman. And then I think this was the story where they claimed that they then cut off her breast and started tossing it to each other like a ball. Horrifying stuff. But CNN and the other media did not report another thing this alleged eyewitness said in the same recording played by the Israeli police. And I quote from the recording, 
I saw one of them carrying a naked girl on his shoulder while the others were raising decapitated heads like in a kind of demonstration of power. So has anyone said, has anyone else said that they saw Palestinian fighters carrying decapitated heads? Uh, even the Israeli government hasn't said that. But that shows you the credibility of this alleged eyewitness who was um, who has been widely cited, and up till up till recent days, the only alleged uh, eyewitness. And um, finally, on Kochav El Kayam Halevi, uh, the journalist Max Blumenthal has pointed out that while she is unwilling to share any real information, not even numbers although she claims to have this vast database of evidence, uh, she's happy to spread disinformation. And here's a video of her presenting an old photo of a, a deceased Kurdish female fighter, nothing to do with Palestine, and claiming that it is an Israeli woman assaulted at the supernova rave on October 7th. So th this is, uh, she was giving a talk, I think, at Harvard, and it's just a short clip we can play. Another image shows the body of a young woman stripped from the waist down, her underwear were torn, hung on one leg, and she was photographed uh, on the site at the Nova Music Festival. Okay, so now, and then... Another image Yeah, that, it's just repeating now. We can switch to the next uh, slide, as it were, which in which Max uh, Blumenthal documents the pictures that that uh, LKM Levy is talking about, that they actually come from uh, a completely different country and uh, they come from May of 2023. And so nothing to neither from the place and time that she's talking about. And uh, and a final slide I want to show, a tweet I want to show from Max, points to a very pertinent fact that in the reports that are circulating in the last couple of days, and this includes a, a report in this, the, the UK newspaper, the Sunday Times, and it's been circulated in others, um, quotes a new uh, an eyewitness called Yoni Sadon, who allegedly witnessed this horrible rape of a beautiful woman who was saying, kill me, kill me, I'm going to die anyway from this thing by five or six fighters, so, so this witness claims. And as Max points out, that prior to December 3rd, there is no reference to this Yoni Sardan or to this testimony. This simply appeared now, out of the blue, two months after the event when Israel found its narrative uh, in, in, in trouble. Ali, the, uh, it's uh, it's. Um, I mean, there's there's so many thoughts I have. I mean, on the one hand, uh, these fabrications are uh, it, it's so similar, it, it duplicates uh, to claims that uh, people have made against people of color here in the U.S. Um, especially, you know, I mean, you know, Emmett Till wasn't that long mm -hmm. ago. Um, and these uh, these false claims of black men, or now we're you know Palestinian men, men not able to control themselves around white women or Israeli women, um, is 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 part and parcel of 
white supremacist ideology. It's meant to incite um, consent, manufacture consent for whatever comes next, whether it's lynchings uh, or whether it's uh, the genocide of, of people in Gaza. Um, what, like, what, what can we, what's the purpose of all of this? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Nora. There is a long history of this in colonial uh, history of, of painting indigenous people or enslaved people as dangerous, barbaric savages, and particularly the men who are considered the greatest threat as sexual predators against the settler women yeah. or the white, white colonial women. And you see that uh, in North America with depictions of Native Americans and uh, enslaved black men as rapists. And that was often the pretext or excuse for lynching. And it was also very prevalent in apartheid South Africa, where people would, the, the term that was used was Sfarte Gavar, which is a uh, Afrikaans or Dutch uh, uh, phrase meaning black danger. Uh, that, that women were taught that uh, black men would rape them. And so this gave an excuse not just to control, to further control these populations, but to kill them, as Israel is doing now, or as with all the lynchings we saw in the South. And of course, as I mentioned in my, um, my uh, commentary the other day, uh, the the Nazis used this kind of propaganda against Jews. And what it does is it reduces the resistance of the uh, population to the extermination or murder or demonization of this population. You, you demonize them into this great danger. You rile people's anger up. And using such a vis visceral stuff, we haven't even gone into how lurid some of the claims are that Israel is making about what happened on October 7th. But that serves the purpose of riling people up at home and abroad to support the extermination of Palestinians. And, and that is uh, really what's going on here. I'll just say in, in closing, one final twist or innovation yeah. of Israel here is uh, not so much to do this in the crude colonial way of the past, but they've put kind of a Me Too spin on it. So now it's all about believe women, believe Israeli women. And if you don't believe these claims, then you're the type of person who doesn't believe women who say they're sexually assaulted. But the, the problem with that here is there are no women to believe because, as I've said, Israel is not so far. Maybe they'll find one months later uh, or decades later, as uh, Al-Kayam Levy says, uh, who claims to have been attacked. But so far, there are no women coming forward and saying, I was a victim of this, believe me. And it's Israel they want us to believe. But yeah. why would we believe Israel, which lies 99.999% uh, of the time, as, as we well know. But I just want people to be aware of the questions to ask when you see these claims and uh, how to challenge this really violent propaganda which is being used to incite and justify genocide and that's why i think it was important to spend time dissecting it well uh i know we really appreciate that ali i know it's not um uh you know a, an easy topic to have to spend days and days and days on um but it is very important especially when we're talking about manufacturing consent 
um, and 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 um, using these kinds of just vile and and horrific stories to further uh, demonize and uh, dehumanize Palestinians um, who are fighting for liberation. Um, we are gonna. Um, cut this segment um, later on and, and have it as a standalone uh, segment uh, on YouTube. So for our, our viewers and listeners, um, stay tuned for that. Um, it's you know very important that we're able to document these and and uh, you know put them up against all of this uh, propaganda that we're that we're being fed. Um, this is the Electronic Intifada live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Freeman with Asa Winstanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. Um, we were going to have uh, our friend Sawar Al-Ejla uh, today. Uh, she couldn't join us. She did write an extraordinary article for us. I don't know if we can put it up, um, but it's basically about the abandonment uh, by the medical community, the international medical community of uh, physicians and medical staff in Gaza. And I encourage everyone to read it. Um, we'll get that up in just a second. Um, here it is. It's why were West's doctors outraged about Ukraine, but silent about Gaza. We published that on uh, Thursday last week. So um, please do go uh, read that. And we'll have Suwar on very soon. Um, uh, Asa, before we go to Abdul Jawad and John, do you want to read some of the comments that we've uh, received so far just about that last segment with Ali? Yeah. Um, maybe just to say quickly before I do that, um, there's so much about this story that really reminds me of the fabricated anti-semitism crisis in the labor party yeah because it it's the mobilization of identity politics to kind of distract from israel's crimes basically because you know in in that as well you're supposed to believe jews believe believe jews no you know regardless right. of any standards of evidence and so forth and so it's very significant that Israel has mobilized this female uh, person who is supposed to, you know, supposed to be this independent investigation investigator, but as we've heard, she's very much not, um, and, you know, it's that kind of thing. And also the idea, you know, from that Gal, Gal Gadot saying, claiming that there's silence about this. Um, and we've seen the same thing that, oh, oh why, you know, uh, me too, unless it's, unless it's a Jew, that's what they've been saying. Yeah. So they're sort of saying, oh, where's the outrage about this? Exactly the same thing that they did in the fabricated anti-Semitism crisis. Um, and also the idea that the fact that there's no victims, they can't produce any actual victims of this. Um, in my book, I give the example of um, the, in, 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 no, no time to get into it all now, but there was a situation at Oxford University where, um, the pro-Corbyn left was being accused of anti-Semitism. And um, what was claimed, one of the claims there was one of these pro-Corbyn students had followed and harassed a, a Jewish student around campus. Well, not only was this denied by university um, administrators, but there was no, th this, this, this uh, Jewish girl didn't exist. That there was right. a name was never produced. That even years later, 
the idea this girl has never been produced. So, you know, it's um, the whole thing is very uh, reminiscent in that way to me. Yeah, it's very manipulative and it's actually very dangerous um, as, as we've yeah. talked about for years. You know, if you're claiming anti-Jewish bigotry, uh, it only, you know, it only serves to, to, to uh, you know, create uh, more of a dangerous situation. Um, if you're claiming sexual assault when there is none, it, it only, uh, you know, makes actual victims of sexual assault more uh, in danger. It's it's all yeah. just. And just what one more. Yeah. I know. I, I know. We want to move on from this, but one thing I, I want to point to is that how uh, there's a major push, not just through the media, but to to get UN bodies and to pressure uh, uh, women's organizations to adopt this narrative, and right. then to smear and bully them if they don't, and right. say, "Oh, you you don't believe Israeli women, or you support Hamas." So it's incredibly damaging, ultimately, to the cause of actually uh, preventing and and having accountability for sexual right. assault because it just weaponizes and corrupts the discourse, yeah, uh, as Israel has done with the fight against anti-Semitism. Yeah. Uh, you want me? Okay. So to sort of transition into some of these comments. I mean, we we had it quite. You know quite a few people saying things about our discussion, uh, the facts that Ali was presenting. And one of our viewers has said that they're in an argument on Twitter slash X yesterday, and the person they were arguing with said, I had to prove that there wasn't any rapes. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea, you know, the false standard of evidence that's being put forward by some people is that, oh, well, you have to prove a negative, you know. That's you're just supposed to assume that, of course, Palestinians would have raped Israel. Right. That, right. That's, that's what you should assume. You know, this racist standard. Um, uh, another viewer says um, the uh, the narrative spread by Israel is to cover up their failure, failure militarily. I think this is a really important point that a lot of this atrocity propaganda is really being deployed as a distraction from the fact that. Israel suffered a massive military defeat on the 10th, on, on the 7th of October. Yeah. Um, that it was, you know, it was a massive failure for them in that way and a massive success for Palestinian armed resistance. Um, and uh, let me see, what else can I read here? Uh, yeah, we have, we've had a lot of support and a lot of um, positive feedback, including from Mr. R. Walker. <laughs> um, thank you, Roger. Thanks, Roger. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, transition into the second half of uh, this show. We want to bring in our good friend, Abdul Jawad Omar. He is a lecturer at Birzeit University uh, in the occupied West Bank. Uh, and of course, John Elmer, our uh, contributing editor. And um, I, I just wanted to have both of you uh, just kind of take a moment and discuss what we're seeing, uh, especially in the West Bank, which is being overlooked at this at this moment, um, but is also, you know, incredibly brutalized by the Israeli occupation military. Um, and then, you know, talk about what what is happening in terms of the uh, resistance in Gaza and what it's been able to achieve, uh, especially in the last four days as the 
truce uh, expired and Israel immediately started carpet bombing again. So Abdul Jawad, um, why don't we start with you? Can you give us a sense of what's happening in the West Bank now? Um, what uh, what is what's Israel's objectives uh, right now in in the West Bank where you are? I mean, its its objective is to use this moment to um, as much as possible contain and roll back the armed movement in the north of the West Bank, um, confining its ability to grow and sustain its uh, capacity to resist. So it's been doing uh, uh, a lot of repeated, uh, you know, 12 hour, 16 hour attacks, uh, sometimes uh, more than that in Jenin, in Qalqilia, in Tulkarim, in other places with a large scale uh, arrest campaign targeting uh, most uh, of the active or political actors, even a lot of dormant people who have no real political activities, but, you know, could be used as a chip in the exchange uh, with prisoners. It's, she's, uh, Israel is also targeting. Um, so there's, a, you know, an increase in intensity, as we said earlier, a lot of times in terms of, you know, it's military operations, it's arrest campaign, um, all, in, of course, with, you know, the support uh, and the facilitation of the PA and its security services. So that's what, what's been happening, um, you know, across the West Bank for the past uh, month or so. It continues with, you know, intensity. Um, and it, it has met, you know, there has been some successes on that point because the pressure um, has been uh, very uh, uh, tough for a lot of the, the, the armed movements in the north of the West Bank. But still, yeah, they have been able to still persevere, at least at, you know, at, at at some level, but you know the the nature of the attention on Gaza, the nature of you know acceptance of people of mass killings, have also enabled Israel to to conduct such mass killings in in the West Bank. We have we're talking about more than three hundred martyrs, um, um, or at least around three hundred martyrs in the West Bank, which is a big number since October seventh. Yeah. Um, can you give us a sense of? I mean, there's also been these mass arrest campaigns. Um, you know, as uh, Israeli captives were being released, uh, Palestinian children and women prisoners were also being released, uh, but uh, Israeli forces were sweeping up other uh, children and uh, men and women, uh, you know, to, to fill the prisons at the same time. Can you give us a sense of um, what's been happening, you know, when, when these children come back home, what the reception has been like? Uh, with their families, the the threats that their families have gotten from Israeli forces, if they you know celebrate, uh, God forbid, any expressions of joy are forbidden, uh, especially in East Jerusalem. Um, can can you give us a sense of what what that's been like, uh, where you are? I mean, yeah, I mean, um, for the six days or seven days that we had, uh, you know, a pause in the fighting, there were these exchange of prisoners, uh, which actually. Um, included um, the gathering of a lot of people uh, to receive the prisoners in the West Bank. So you had these uh, demonstrations, if you want, um, and these demonstrations, um, you know, at the moment of reception included the raising of Palestinian flags, Hamas flags as well, 
um, sometimes even Hezbollah flags. It showed the current moment, the current political moment. It also included, um, you know, um, a reticence on the part of the PA officials to come and participate in these events, um, which meant that for a moment, Palestinians, you know, were receiving their uh, prisoners without the official presence and the niceties that, you know, are enforced on people in these situations. So you had uh, you had these kind of um, you know they were they had a mix of uh, both elation and of course a lot of pain because um, these prisoners of exchange come also in a moment where Gaza is reeling from all the violence um, that has been um, you know uh, rained on it from the sky and from its uh, military over the past month or so. So there, there was these moments, and I think they're political significant in the sense that they showed uh, a real coalescence uh, around the idea of resistance in the West Bank. It showed uh, the yearning uh, of people to meet without this kind of uh, mediator, this official mediator called the PA. And of course, later on, seeing that, the PA decided to um, start participating in these in these events by um, including within these events people who are wearing civilian clothes but are really security service members, um, you know, who who were there to disrupt and remind the people that they they're there with their muscle, etc. So that was the part of the scene that that existed at least in the West Bank. Um, in Jerusalem, of course, as you mentioned, you know, people were confined in the homes. They, they were not supposed to show any form of public celebration or gatherings. Uh, despite that, people did go to a lot of these uh, homes to receive the children and the women being released. Um, it's a mixed moment, I think, for most Palestinians, a moment where uh, these prisoners are not received as, uh, you know, because they finished their time. They're received because uh, there's a affirmation of Palestinian agency, power, um, to release them uh, through negotiations on the terms of prison, uh, prison exchange that, that were happening. So it was a very empowering moment, but at the same time, it comes with a lot of pain and a lot of uh, uh, anguish as well. Absolutely. John, I want to bring you into this as well. Um, can you, uh, yeah, just re react to, to to what Abdel Jawad was saying about the West Bank and, and this kind of... Um, you know, real uh, coalescence of, of uh, community and support of Palestinian resistance factions. Um, and at the same time, uh, your assessment on what we're seeing in Gaza right now. Yeah, I mean, the West Bank release was incredible to watch. I, um, it, it, still, um, it still resonates. Um, it, it was amazing to watch. And uh, I, I hope that it continues. Um, like Abdul Jawad said, the fact that there's uh, Israel's rearresting um, at the same rate. Um, hopefully, those people are included in the next prisoner exchange, which is something that's difficult uh, for Palestinians to negotiate when Israel um, always goes back against these agreements. And there's no, um, not that there should be trust, but just uh, respect for the for the agreements that are made. Um, it happened with the Shalit deal when they rearrested people um, in the in that uh, deal. Um, so those things I think we're used to, but um, uh, really shows Israel's face. I think in the Gaza Strip, um, to, to switch to the Gaza Strip, we're seeing what we um, 
unfortunately predicted last week is that the, there's nothing the Palestinians could do to postpone um, the attack on the south. Uh, Israel's uh, appears to be in the last few hours uh, moving into the south as part of the ground invasion. The previous four days uh, were this kind of, uh, as you described off the top of the show, Nora, just these terrible civilian massacres again. They began um, the resumption of violence with just airstrikes, um, even though their forces were on the ground for you know seven seven days in position um, to come out of the truce um, or come out of the pause uh, fighting their ground war. They're not doing that. They just attack from the sky. Um, and even their claims of successes are from airstrikes. Their successes that they claim against Palestinian fighters and leadership aren't battlefield successes. They're um, aerial bombardment massacres that include, um, you know, killings of literally hundreds of other people, um, innocent people who had nothing to do with um, October 7th. Um, and these justifications um, you know, that we started the show off that are really always really difficult to listen to the first hour of the show. And um, um, those stories are, are just used uh, as fuel, as if those stories, if you tell the worst lie you can think of, that it will somehow justify killing tens of thousands of people uh, without any serious military um, objectives. And it appears now, like the IDF is saying that they're pretty much done with the north of the West, uh, north of the Gaza Strip, that part of the uh, operation. Um, they appear to be wrapping it, um, wrapping it up with they talk about thorough um, successes that jump all over the board. Uh, before the truce started, um, Israeli sources were saying one to two thousand fighters had been killed. Um, we had a seven-day pause in fighting, and somehow during that pause, it got up to 5,000 um, fighters killed. But even if we use those numbers from Israel, um, you're talking about a fraction of the number of people that have been killed. Um, there's no indication that they're going to um, do any kind of tunnel um, fighting at all, um, but they're lying about that as well, going into the um, to the pause in fighting, the Yahalom unit, which is the IDF's um, special forces unit, uh, engineering unit that that focuses on tunnels, they said that they had um, dealt with 400 um, tunnels of the 1300 that the IDF says um, that they that the Palestinians have. Um, we come out of the ceasefire and it's 800 tunnels. So uh, you can see the propaganda as the underpinning um, of this war, both uh, justifying it in the first place, um, but then also um, winding it down in areas by claiming successes that, um, military successes that don't exist. Um, and so that the whole campaign, I mean, I don't know how else we would do it besides covering this stuff. It's very difficult to do the first hours with the doctors and uh, and with Ali's um, summary of, of the, the, the terrible case um, of just weaponizing sexual violence in that way to justify massacres. It's like uh, both sides of the sword are just um, really despicable and... Um, 
yeah it's it's uh uh the 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 fact that they're moving into the south um with everybody concentrated in that area being pushed out 80 percent plus i mean the numbers that osha uh that the un are saying is 80 percent, but i'm not sure who that other 20 percent is i suppose there's some areas of rafa in the south very south that haven't been evacuated but um you're talking about dispossession of the basically the entire gaza strip and you know the new york times did a study of the the casualties and at least 70 percent of them are women and children so um minimal successes um and amplified uh, civilian casualties that um i guess now 60 days on yeah um are still not um and we should never be able to digest no uh, no, it's impossible. John, uh, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to ask John uh, um, more about that report where they said they'd uh, dealt with uh, how how many hundred tunnels it was now. Eight hundred. Eight hundred. They say they found eight hundred. So now they're switching. They used to say how many tunnels they had um, taken out or how many shafts they'd taken out. So Yahalom said four hundred going into the ceasefire. Um, now 500 coming out of the ceasefire and they say that they've found 800. I'm not sure what, what that necessarily uh, but the, means. But just to clarify, they haven't said we sent uh, dogs oh, or robots or Bigfoot no. down any of the tunnels. No, they're talking about bombing shafts. Um, okay. They use All a right. liquid emulsion to blow up um, some of it. Um, they're just blowing up entrances um, yeah. to the tunnels, which as we know from the Israelis who have been in the tunnels, um, they're a spider web, and so blowing up individual shafts doesn't impact the overall uh, functioning of the system. So, as far as we know, so um, so no, there's nothing like any of uh, uh, you know what they say that they're they're destroying Hamas's capabilities. The IDF said, um, and they just and they moment. haven't found. Just to be clear, they haven't found all this time they've been in the north. They haven't found an underground shopping mall and luxury resort in Gaza. No, they have. No. Well, they, if they did, they wouldn't go and find out what was in it. I mean, the only examples that they that we saw were uh, of tunnel apparatuses were underneath Shifa Hospital, um, which the Israelis um, engineers built themselves um, in previous decades. And that we saw um, the examples from uh, Shifa were um, a like a terror toilet and uh, like two... Um, well, there was also the terror rooms the, that looked like just yeah. like basic uh, hospital, like any yeah, but room. Don't in a forget, they found the baby bottle of terror at the Rantisi Children's Hospital uh, before that. So, and then they've taken up the position in that hospital. So now, so after all of this time of talking about how it's a command center, they're using the hospitals, which is, I guess, what we predicted that they're using the hospitals. Um, as a base of operations and they're using schools for the same thing they showed a video of one um tunnel um i mean this tunnels in shifa they were saying were 200 and 300 meters away from from the hospital and for people that have been in gaza that's that's a lot of population it's a densely populated mm -hmm. area you're talking 200 300 meters in an urban environment um they're just not meaningful statistics they're they're not meaningful they're the, the propaganda mill doesn't require 
um, verifiable information. They've moved completely on to Shifa. How, how come in all this time we haven't seen what they said that they were going to look for in Shifa, even though they've now had weeks to do it? Um, that story will just go the way of, but, uh, uh, of the other lies. And, and mm -hmm. we should point out that, the, as many have pointed out, that they don't even bother anymore to uh, justify their attacks on hospitals. I mean, with Rantisi Hospital and with Shifa, they uh, offered a pretext. Now they don't. I mean, the reports uh, in the last few hours of, of bombing and shelling of the entrance to Kemal Adwan Hospital in the southern part of Gaza shows that they're now turning, after destroying all the hospitals in the north, they're now turning to destroy all the hospitals in the south as well, which, I, I, which would indicate to me that the real military goal is to make life impossible in Gaza and ultimately to expel the population. They're still trying to do that. I'm not saying they'll succeed, but it's clear to me that, that that's the only way to make sense of what they're doing. Uh, I don't know what... And the, uh, and the hospitals board, in the uh, south yeah, are yeah. now full of people that were in the hospitals in the north that have been closed down. Yeah. And so you have this double, you know, doubly compounded um, just brutality. Um, the the pictures coming out of Khan Yunus from, from this weekend um, are just shocking. Um, they're just outright crimes. Um, and, to, and, you know, when we talk about October 7th, we talk about how everybody in Israel gets this very individualized, personalized tragedy. Uh, we hear from everybody's family members. Even when they um, don't exist. Even when they, but, but in, in Palestine, we just get a, a, a bunch of numbers. Um, and once the numbers get, get big, it's like it doesn't, it, it's like it doesn't matter anymore and the the situation in Khan Yunus you're going to push the entire Gaza Strip into one tiny place uh in Rafa as we've seen um Israel's um, plan to avoid war crimes trials is now to divide the strip up into like 2500 zones um that they tell people to look at a QR code on their phones when nobody has power um you know, nobody has battery power, nobody uh, has any kind of uh, technology functioning at a level that would allow a nuanced um, evacuation. And um, I don't know if we can show the map at, at some point for people um, to see in this show. It's mind-boggling. The overlap of the map is such that um, it just looks like a pile of uh, ink in the spots unless you zoom right in. Um, because the areas virtually overlap. And so Israel's telling people to leave from certain areas um, and people don't, people are confused about where to go. Um, and also and Israel's uh, just dropping these buildings, yeah. 50 also, buildings John, in John, how, how would people get hold of these maps? Right. I mean, how, how would, how would they organize their departure from one area to another? I mean, it's, this is all just about, what I'm saying is these are not real warnings for people in Gaza. This is, again, propaganda to say, oh, look how careful we're being. We're even telling them where right. they can go to. Right. So humane. Yeah, I mean, look at look at the, so you know, just the image on the on the right. Yeah. I mean, if you if you were to drop a map like that on my neighborhood where I am now at that kind of scale and resolution, I wouldn't be able to figure out which street is in which which area or 
how to get safely from one to the other in the middle of a bombardment and a war and a sea. I mean, yeah. the, the point is that it's like when the, the Israeli army put videos on Twitter in English early in the war uh, on social media in English telling Palestinians in Gaza City to evacuate to the south at, uh, at a time when the internet was totally cut off in Gaza and people there speak Arabic. I mean, of course, some people speak English, but it's not the language you'd use. Again, it was a propaganda exercise entirely for media and Western propaganda mm -hmm. consumption. It was not about actually, they just don't care. They bomb anyway. And that's what we've been seeing. The massacres over the last two days in Shuja'iya, in, in Jabalia, and so in the north and the south of Gaza, the massacres are continuing nonstop. So there's no, the point I'm making is, there's no uh, correlation whatsoever between the claims Israel makes about what it's doing to protect people and the reality where it's massacring them at an, ex at an accelerating rate over the 24-hour period that uh, I think this was yesterday, Sunday, uh, uh, the health ministry reported that in the previous 24 hours, 700 people had been killed. 700 people in a, in a single day. The genocide is accelerating. And those numbers are, are totally undercounts, too, because the number of people that are stuck under buildings, um, yeah. it's, 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 it's criminal. And, and the other thing is, um, just using IDF numbers, the Israelis um, say that their ground forces have called in 10,000 airstrikes, just their ground forces. So there's no, that's completely separate from that map, from their target bank, um, from their intelligence. Um, there, there's no pretext, uh, pretense that when you're saying your ground forces are calling in the airstrikes, um, that you've done any kind of, um, um, you know, back work on, on where you're hitting. Your ground forces are telling you where resistance fighters are attacking you from, and then you're calling in airstrikes. And the IDF numbers themselves um, are saying that 10,000 of the airstrikes are called in by their ground troops. Um, and they brag about the speed at which um, their ground troops can act, or their air force can act in um, conjunction with their ground troops to carry out these um, attacks in less than um, six, they, six minutes. So there's not any kind of verification, even though the Israelis have lawyers um, embedded now and lawyer soldiers embedded in their units um, because they're committing war crimes and they're already uh, visualizing the trials that'll come and, and they're, they're pre-positioning evidence um, for future trials in, embedded in their units. They have these yeah. uh, lawyers at a brigade level like at anyone who's who's setting off um, significant weaponry uh, has a lawyer um, there, um, you know, pre-positioning evidence uh, for after the fact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Abdul Jawad, uh, I want to bring you back in. What what's your response to to, to John's analysis, and how can we further understand uh, what's happening, especially in the in the southern Gaza Strip? I mean, I think from the beginning of uh, the campaign uh, on Gaza, I don't think it's only a matter. I mean, of course, there's a, there's an important angle about the whole framing of 
your military operation and what, what goals it has. But I think civilians are an integral part of what Israel is actually targeting, intentionally, deliberately, in mass, because within its military logic, placing pressure on the civilian population might be the key to how that civilian population will then rise or uh, attempt to tame the resistance or um, start pressuring its own uh, resistance to to concede for Israel. At least that is part of the equation. The second part is what Ali mentioned, which is as it rolls its military uh, into Gaza, it, it opens the possibility of making Gaza uninhabitable, of making Gaza uh, a place where people cannot return to, and of perhaps if it, it if it gets more international backing, including regional backing, of driving some of the Gazans outside of the Gaza Strip uh, as part of its desire to at least uh, see uh, Palestinians go through what it claimed is uh, another Nakba. Yeah. So I think that is that is that is the military operation that we're seeing. I mean. Um, you know, as as John was mentioning, you know, the whole notion of you know uh, shafts or tunnel shafts, the the inability to risk your soldiers, even after you said there's this horrible uh, event that happened uh, on October seventh, um, your reticence and um, you know lack of heroism, you know, you, the soldier that goes in and and, and actually combats. Uh, fighters and and you know you might lose you know a lot of soldiers but at the end of the day you might also you know triumph over your foes this is not what israel's uh military and i think part of the problem is is that it sees itself with you know increasing international pressure somewhat it's a schizophrenic pressure because the u.s is enabling this massacre and genocide the european union is enabling this massacre and genocide and so is uh, the UK and other other important international players, but at the same time they want to confine this uh, massacre in a specific temporal uh, horizon, so it doesn't go un, undefined, and therefore they're pressuring Israel to do it faster, more intensive. But at the same time, um, Israel needs to at least show that it's actually managing to successfully dismantle something. And that's why this like urgent propaganda comes in. That's why it needs to always kind of affirm that it has done something successful, whether militarily or otherwise, to kind of tell the intelligence community of the world, the military community of the world, uh, the you know the people who 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 are watching from afar and who are looking that it's actually being or conducting something meaningful in a military sense within the Gaza Strip. That's beyond, of course, the whole, you know, uh, international legal frame of, you know, protecting itself from war crimes or propaganda uses for its own population and, of course, uh, for all its backers or also uh, enemies across the world. So I think that's why you see it falling in its own propaganda trap uh, uh, day after day, you know, declaring Shifa as an important complex for Hamas and then failing to meet the criteria for that when it actually went to Shifa, seeing it, you know, um, uh, stutter uh, when it comes to, um, you know, providing actual real, um, you know, evidence or otherwise that it's actually conducting anything meaningful that is hurting the resistance, including inflating numbers of resistance fighters being killed or changing them, you know, at whim. You know, these these things, you know, are just go underreported, but I think they're also an important angle in, in this whole campaign that Israel has conducted 
a, a campaign against civilians, primarily, mostly, and you know, in, in, that's the only meaningful part of its military operation. Kill civilians, pressure the civilians, create a humanitarian crisis, and then see if these civilians turn against their own resistance. And uh, in terms of that, uh, getting them to try to turn against their own resistance, uh, I mean, that, that clearly isn't working, or if it is working to any extent, it's not helping Israel because it's not, we haven't seen anyone surrender. We haven't seen anyone uh, coming forward and saying, I'll help you to find uh, the resistance. Uh, and Israel hasn't found the resistance. I mean, the, the, there isn't even a theoretical um, connection between Israel's stated goals and what it's doing. Like, the, you know, how are they going to dismantle Hamas? Hamas, as far as we know, is underground. We don't know where they are underground. Uh, Israel told us they were under Al-Shifa hospital. Turns out that's not where they are. And now they're saying they're under Khan Yunis, maybe. Uh, for all we know, they could be under uh, Stirat or under Ashkelon. We don't know. We don't know how far the, the tunnels go. Uh, but th there is no theoretical connection. So is it, is, is it simply... Is it, is it that Israel, I mean, I, I'm curious to know what you think, Abud. Is it, is it Israel, their, their real goal is the undeclared or semi-declared, because they're not that secret about it, goal of expelling the Palestinian population? Is that the goal that they're still driving towards? Or is it simply that they understand that they have failed militarily but what you do in that case is double down because otherwise all you're going to the only other option is to admit defeat so is is it just that they're keeping the war going because it's politically too costly to stop it what do you think john as well i mean is there a goal to what israel is doing other than or are the death and destruction ends in themselves is it expulsion or is it just they don't know what else to do except to keep doing this I mean, um, from I don't know if John wants to go first, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll take it up. Um, part of I think part of Israel's historical experience in terms of its military operations has been always to find strategy on the fly. What what I mean by that is that we kind of overestimate how much they actually um, have concrete strategic political object objectives. Um, and generally speaking, even in 1982 or otherwise, you see historical repetition of, you know, Israeli military leaders and its security brass just changing the goalpost depending on, on what's happening within uh, uh, the dynamics on the ground in their military campaign. So um, I think from the beginning, Israel wanted to open the space for whatever is possible in terms of, you know, um, yeah, maybe driving people out of Gaza, making Gaza inhabit uh, uninhabitable. Um, it, it tried to open that space using that October 7th moment to do that. And, you know, I'm sure somebody was sitting in a meeting and said, this is an opportunity to do things that perhaps we long should have done. And, and in that moment, we should just open as much political horizon, strategic horizon. At the same time, we need, there's a lot of inhibitors, um, whether it's social, political, diplomatic, 
um, that we need to take into account, including, you know, the issue of Israelis imprisoned within Gaza, including issues relating to the economic conditions within Israel itself, including the issue of mobilizing the reserve soldiers, including, you know, American political credit and to what extent it will back our campaign. You know, all of these come into play in terms of this decision making. But for me, I wouldn't call Israel uh, a, an actor that really knows what it wants, but I think Part of part of its at least thinking right now is can we reach a a, a, a place within Gaza, for instance, where we um, besiege or kill some of the important political leaders of and military leaders of the uh, uh, armed Palestinian uh, resistance in the Gaza Strip? Um, you know, in mimicking perhaps uh, something like what happened to Yasser Arafat in the in the in the Second Intifada when he was besieged, or in this case, perhaps assassinated, um, you know, as as a means to declare some sort of, you know, victory, because this is the important thing is that it needs an image of victory. It's yearning for that image um, to show to its society, to show to the world. Um, and the, the current image that it's creating is is horror. So it's trying to burn into the consciousness of Palestinians. If you dare challenge us, this is what will happen to you through this massive destruction. Uh, massive killing and massacres, and we're not shy to use our firepower. And of course, it comes at a co political cost because we see even among the Democrats in the U.S., for instance, only 36 percent, 36 percent now back Israel's war in Gaza. You know, so you have at least around you know you know a majority of Democrats now against uh, the, the the ongoing campaign in the Gaza. So it's coming at a cost. Uh, in terms of its moral political standing in the globe. But I think it's more interesting in burning into our consciousness as, as Palestinians that, you know, any any resistance come with a cost. And the other element, um, it needs a, it, it desires some sort of uh, image of victory that it can bring back to its own society, which it actually misled. I mean, Israel's society today you know, is, is one of the most, you know, it backs with veracity Israel's campaign in the Gaza Strip. It, it lost its sense of, uh, of security. And the propaganda you just talked about, uh, you know, created this vivid image, which where, you know, truth and fiction, you know, mingled uh, and creating this horrible, uh, uh, you know, creating out of what uh, happened in the October 7th, uh, moment, something that, you know, enabled also Israeli society to go through its own, you know, moment of unity and the need to sacrifice and the notion that, you know, all these horrible crimes, beheaded babies, etc., were fed into Israeli society itself. So Israeli society is pushing its government to continue with, with this war. But I think as Israel is in a bind. It knows it's in a bind. It, 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 it's, it's losing uh, in many fronts. Uh, and we still haven't talked about the regional co component of all of this. Yeah. Yeah, John, uh, your response and also maybe talk about the regional component. This would, wouldn't this be the time that like Israel has the will, like the, the, the polls coming out of, I mean, polls coming out of Israel are hard to, to trust because um, they make it, they've made it basically illegal to criticize um, right now. And especially if you're a Palestinian um, living in Israel. So you've already got 30% of the population cut out of these polls. But usually when they do polling, they don't even include Palestinians as part uh, of the Israeli polling. Um, but the, the numbers are virtually, like virtually 100% 
um, support. So there, there is will to fight and people are mad because of the stories of October 7th. So you'd think that is there it would will be... to fight or is it will for other people to fight? Well, I you'd mean, think that this was their how motivated do you think? How motivated do you think the Israeli soldiers are when you when you look? And by the way, John, there, of course, as you have you've seen, there have been new videos that came out in recent days from since the breakdown of the truce from the Qassam brigades showing them going full on uh, against the Israeli tanks and soldiers. And, uh, you know, we've seen more spectacular videos coming out, which suggests that on the Palestinian side, the morale and the determination and the preparation is extremely high. Uh, what do you think? I mean, Israel is a rich uh, consumerist society like the United States or like Canada, where there's lots of people who are uh, willing to wave the flag or put the put the flag emoji in their social media media and say we should destroy this or we should bomb that and we should send in the Marines to do this, but they they don't want to go themselves and do it. Uh, is is it similar to is it similar to to that or do you think Israel is a different kind of a beast? Well, they're fighting this war so carefully um, from their troops' point of view um, that I, I think it's even surprising um, because you'd think that this was their moment. If there was ever going to be a moment that they would have uh, like an esprit de corps in their in their troops that would, um, you know, uh, willing to sacrifice, um, that it would be in this moment that we've been told that, um, you know, people... Uh, uh, in the north of Israel are telling their government from the settlements in the north that they're not going to move back because of Hezbollah. Um, they need to presumably repopulate the entire Gaza envelope, including the entire security forces um, of that area, um, which isn't an easy thing to do. And so you're, you've, you've gone to the core issues of Israel as a state. Can it protect its own citizens? Um, can it do um, you know, the can it actually root out um, Hamas in the way that they've said that they're going to do it? They're setting themselves up for a situation where they come out of it um, without the military successes, even to their own population, because um, there's no evidence at this point that they're having military successes. And part of the reason that you know that they're not um, is because of the ones that they do claim. Like yesterday, they claimed the assassination um, of Wissam Farhat, who is the leader of the Shujaia Battalion of the Qassam Brigades, who over the previous 15 years have been the most formidable um, fighting um, force within Qassam of all their uh, various units. And they're the units that attack Nahal Oz, which in 2014 was that um, spectacular um, attack where on camera they overran um, the the security post. Uh, what I don't know what you want to call them. Their bases, their military bases, um, overran. Um, and and so the the claim is that they killed the battalion commander um, of that force. And in describing who he was. They, they sort of inadvertently talk about how they've gradually been losing this war 
for 25 years. Farhat came out of prison in 2005. He goes back to Gaza in 2005 when the Israelis are leaving. Um, and Qassam has, for the first time anywhere, Palestinians have um, some sort of autonomy over the physical space. Israel can't say that they have intelligence people anymore because they're not even in the Gaza Strip anymore. Their ability to um, to lure people into participating is down, is very difficult. So Farhad comes out and works from 2005 when Qassam's rockets go like 15 kilometers. Um, and between 2005 and 2010, which is also Operation Cast Lead, where they kill a thousand civilians, um, but again, show no military um, success. They're not able to knock out the leadership. So but, Farhad uh, becomes John... the leader of Qassam from twenty from, from the Shujaia Battalion from 2010 um, until today, until yesterday, when Israel says they killed him. So they've had command and control of these units for 15, 17, 18 years. And those units are all, so in 2014, Shijai, the Shijaiya Battalion was the unit that um, that the Israelis invaded from the East in, tw in the 2014 war um, and got smoked in Shijaiya, um by that battalion. And so even their will to fight, when they're bragging about that they finally, nine years later, killed the commander of the operation um, that that has defined your fighting force since the 2014 war, right? Israel's constantly trying to improve their uh, their military. Um, uh, you know, the the Qassam brigades have transformed um, from a from a you know a loose fighting force um, into an army, and Israel's telling us that they're somehow routing out this army by killing one commander in a unit while describing his trajectory, um, the successful Nahal Oz uh, operations. They're saying that he's a Nukba commander, um, the elite special forces that carried out the first stages of the October 7th attack. And so in describing um, Farhat's role in the Qassam Brigades, Israel's actually articulating how this 20-year military strategy uh, military political strategy to isolate the Gaza Strip, to blockade it, um, ends up creating this army that's now, you know, five times the size of it. But, uh, and you're saying you have military John, successes by killing 5,000 I mean, th of them. This is all... Uh, One-tenth. Yeah, this is all correct. I mean, this is this is absolutely the case. But can we step back and look at an even bigger picture? We're talking about Israel's failure to defeat Hamas in Gaza. And now we're, we're going on almost two months since this started. Two months of the most intense bombing since World War II, according to the New York Times. And, they, and yesterday and over the weekend, uh, Qassam was launching large volleys of rockets uh, towards Tel Aviv and other Israeli cities. So their capacity to do that has been undiminished. And I understand some of those rockets were launched from the north of Gaza. So they're still launching rockets from areas where is, which Israel claims to have held and, and cleared. 
Uh, and, and they then, clearly have the command and control to carry out right. an elaborate prisoner exchange yeah, where but, they actually go and find the people and bring them back to a spot and then release them. So their command and control is clearly correct, completely correct. intact. And, and, and we can assume that their structure in, in, um, in, in, in central and southern Gaza is not only untouched but unused. But what I want to do, I just want to put it to you, and to Abud or to, to everyone here, that if we step back, okay, so we can say Israel has failed militarily and politically in this campaign, uh, this genocide, other than massacring, you know, that's always a given that Israel is the world champion in murdering women and children. We're not talking about that hands down they're the winners. We're talking about military and political achievements. They haven't achieved any. But isn't that always the case with Israel's wars? So, of course, that was true in, in, in Lebanon in 2006. And it was true, I think, if you go back to 1982 in Lebanon, is you can invade Lebanon, you can destroy uh, uh, the PLO there, you can put Yasser Arafat on a boat, and later you can assassinate him in Ramallah, uh, which is all things Israel did the massacres in Sabran Shatila refugee camp. Uh, then we saw 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago in the West Bank, a similar scorched earth campaign where they went and they murdered many people and they destroyed Janine refugee camp. And the, the, the point I want to make is there is no military solution to being a racist settler colony. You can't fight your way out of the resistance. I mean, people are always going to resist you. If you're a racist settler colony, brutalizing the indigenous people while stealing their land, people are going to resist you. And so even if Israel could destroy Hamas as it, as it destroyed the PLO as a military force in Lebanon in 1982, that didn't solve Israel's problem because the resistance came back a few years later, the PLO was neutralized as a military force, but the resistance came back in the form of Hamas just a few years later. In 1988, Hamas was founded in Gaza uh, and became, over the years, as you've traced the history, a very, you know, it went from a small, uh, uh, non-professional force to an extremely disciplined army, as you describe it now. So that that's, I guess that's the point I want to make, that no matter how well the Israelis fight, they cannot solve their fundamental problem. And this was the dilemma that apartheid South Africa faced. I remember doing a lot of, when I wrote my book, One Country, uh, quite a few years ago, doing a lot of reading about South Africa, where the regime at a certain point, the apartheid regime in the mid-1980s or late 1980s, reached a point where they recognized that, militarily speaking, the ANC, the Black Liberation Forces, were not a threat to South Africa in the sense they couldn't destroy the regime. They could harass the regime, they could weaken the regime, they could create chaos. But in a head-to-head -head fight against... Uh, the South African Defense Force, as it was called, uh, very uh, interesting uh, parallel there, um, that the South African Defense Force could, you know, would prevail uh, against any 
enemy. Uh, th that was their calculation, but it would require a level of violence of just massacring people and bombarding townships and uh, and wholesale uh, death and destruction that even the white supremacist regime in South Africa didn't think they could get away with, didn't think their population would, would uh, be coherent enough to support. And I always thought Israel would reach that moment where they'd say, okay, holding on to this settler colony as an apartheid state is just too costly for us and in terms of what we 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 want to do uh to to the you know to to what we would have to do in order to maintain I mean it. that's what Sharon said about Gaza. Right. But you know that point has not come with Israel. It came with Sharon in 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 2005 where it was very costly they couldn't do it. But the, the Israelis have not come to a point where they're not willing to take the next horrifying step, even to the point where you have government ministers saying, or, or former national security advisors saying, yeah, epidemics to, to create mass death and disease. Sure, let's do it. Great idea. That'll make our job easier. Uh, drop a, an atomic bomb on them. Lots of people saying, oh, that's a great idea too. So there's no breaks on Israel. I mean, even apartheid South Africa, the white supremacists had their limit. They said, all right, we can't, we can't do what it takes to maintain this. Let's negotiate a way out. It, is there a fundamental difference between, you know, how do we explain Israel's unwillingness to reach a point where they say enough, enough is enough? I mean, they told us that that's what they were doing, right? They told us that all of these operations into Gaza were were called mowing the lawn, right? That's what they said. They're 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 rolling back the resistance and um, in each of these operations. But the evidence, even from their own statements about the history of the leadership that they're killing to, today, they said they killed the the head the leader uh, of the Shati camp um, battalion. You're showing. Um, the history of your previous operations as also a lie um, because they weren't mowing the grass. In fact, uh, Palestinians' leadership ha has never been... The, the number of assassinations over the history of the Palestinian um, national movement has always um, dug deep into these, into the movements, into the, into the political parties. And that's, that's not happened to Qassam over the last 15 years. Um, other than the massacre of their leadership uh, during the ceasefire negotiations in 2014, their last assassination, um, if I'm not mistaken, was Ahmed Jabari in 2012. Or uh, so you're talking about keeping the the leadership of this these movements intact um, for all of this time, and even if you were trying to actually, if you wanted to fight an actual war against. Um, against the, that army that has been created, you would want the Qassam brigades to facilitate um, the exodus, uh, the evacuation of the people so that you could clear the battlefield for fighting. And then the North, that's what they said they were doing, clearing the battlefield for fighting. But it's clear that that's not the case because they appear by their own statements to be wrapping what they call wrapping up in the North 
Um, so the, the, the actual, as we said, only target of their war was a terror bombing designed to make it seem like the Qassam Brigades or Hamas um, didn't have sovereignty. And they show the exact opposite. They're able to carry out the prisoner exchange um, in that way with the sort of the snap of a finger in a way, because this the, the prisoner exchange required a kind of nimbleness, um, as I've said before, of the leadership um, in order to find these particular prisoners um, and bring them to a certain location, hold people back at that location, and then hand them over. So the day after their terror bombing ends, it appears that the leadership that they were trying to separate the population from is intact. So it's not clear to me what their overall plan is, but I don't, I think that the history um, of these brutal regimes that you mentioned, none of them had the technology, like the advanced technology of, of this attack on Gaza, right? Like the, the coordinated um, uh, terror bombing. Um, and resources that are able to be thrown at it. Um, I don't think we've seen, I don't think it, I think that the New York Times is probably right. If they were trying to find examples um, for two months, and I guess they just, you know, recently gave up and said, yeah, it goes back to Dresden, which was, I, I remember the first live streams we did, we talked about Dresden, um, you know, that we were saying that, that nutty Israeli brass were talking about um, how that was justified. Um, yeah. And so now we're just seeing it take place. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, Abdul Jawad, I want to give you the last word. Um, where, where does this go from here? Um, you know, Israel's, uh, just, um, it, it's, there, there are no limits as Ali was saying to the level of destruction and, and genocide, uh, that, that, that it is meeting out on the people in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. Um, where, where does, where do, where do we go? What happens? Well, I think, I mean, personally, I would start from the fact that despite all the horror um, of what's happening, it's amazing uh, to me, and and it's still, uh, you know, something to contemplate that. Even in the north of the Gaza, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians remain now. And that, you know, at this critical juncture in, 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 in the history of the struggle, people do understand that there's an intensity in terms of, of sacrifice. I'm not saying everybody. Of course, a lot of people might feel differently, specifically in Gaza, and everybody has different feelings. But I think that you know, what Ali was talking to his question, when does Israel realize that it cannot bomb itself uh, or bomb its way uh, and bomb the Palestinian people and defeat them? When will the, the persistence of Palestinian resistance and its capacity to resist, you know, uh, burn in the Israeli consciousness that there's only a political solution to this, uh, 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 you know, uh, long uh, colonial uh, issue that face Palestinians specifically. I think that one of the problems in answering, one of the problems or one of the retorts to that is the resistance and the capacity to sacrifice that we're seeing today uh, in many places, whether in the West Bank or in the Gaza more specifically. But the second problem, I think, uh, why doesn't it realize that is that 
you know, I think nothing has damaged the Palestinians more than their own leadership in the West Bank. Enabling Israel to feel that it could find a partner um, that safeguards its security uh, without the need for a political resolution or nothing has damaged the Palestinian ability to burn into Israeli consciousness a need for a political solution other than what the Israeli, what the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank is doing to the cause, what it's doing to the capacity to resist and what it's doing for the long-term trajectories of, of Palestinian uh, life. And I think, you know, as much as Israel has all these mathematical equations and AI systems and technologies, and as important as these are in, as they are in, in, in war, I think this is the most um, uh, important element of why Israel thinks that it can be successful in Gaza. Because when it thinks about success in Gaza, it thinks about a system where it can freely arrest, where there are Palestinian uh, governance structure that can perhaps be uh, you know, in cahoots with it, it thinks of, you know, a situation where it can build settlements with very little cost. And it has that model already somewhat in the West Bank that it's wishing to replicate or at least has a wish to replicate. And that's, that's I think, uh, a key component, at least that, you know, um, in Vietnam, when, you know, the Americans used to calculate how many kills or how many bombs they're dropping. That's what's happening today in Gaza. You know, it's dropping bombs, bombs as a solution to everything. Eventually, that will dry out in the in the in the medium run, in the in the short term. And Israel will reckon with its failures, with its many failures, including most likely its failure to defeat the resistance in the Gaza Strip. And that will have consequences on it politically, diplomatically, morally and in terms of its standing in the globe. Um, but I think it's also contingent upon the Palestinian people to start asking themselves also critical questions about, you know, uh, much of uh, on those who claim to represent us and on those who claim to, you know, uh, be safe, uh, safeguarding our interest uh, at this critical moment in our history as well. Yeah. Abdel Jawad, you are a lecturer uh, at Birzeit University in the Occupied West Bank. Um, we always appreciate and I'm so grateful uh, to have you on these live streams. Thanks for coming back on today. Um, your analysis is always invaluable. Um, and uh, before we go, uh, Ali, did you want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, supporting the Electronic Intifada? Yes, uh, thank you, Nora, and thank you, Abud and uh, John and uh, Asa, and uh, of course, Tamara behind the scenes as usual, who is just does a great job of making us all look good here. And we, we uh, really appreciate that. Uh, and we appreciate so much all of you who are watching, all of you who are reading. I know from the feedback we get that there are lots of our longtime friends who watch this live stream. And we also know that we have a lot of new viewers who don't know about the electronic intifada or just learning about it. So we always want to show, we do this live stream a couple of times a week and it's fantastic the, the response we get. But we are a publication that goes back uh, two decades or more. And I'd love to show you the website. Um, our website is at electronicintifada.net and or you could just search for the Electronic Intifada. And every day you can find at the website uh, direct 
on the ground reporting from Gaza. In fact, pretty much every story on the front page there of those main features is a an original report from Gaza. And you do not see this. I, do, I don't think there's any other publication in the world right now that's publishing so much direct testimony and reportage from Gaza. In addition to that, you have great analysis uh, and commentary and debunking the lies that Israel tells, just as we did on this live stream uh, earlier, that is being done by us, by our investigative reporters like Asa. Asa does incredible investigative reporting. And all of this is independent. We are independent. We're not funded by any governments. Uh, there's no huge, enormous uh, international institutions that are going to su support us. Uh, we are largely, primarily funded by readers like you, viewers like you. And that's why we can t tell the truth without uh, fear or favor. The only thing we have to fear on this live stream is YouTube uh, censoring us. Uh, and we, we, uh, we still tell you the truth. So um, there's three ways you can support us. Uh, one is, uh, and perhaps the most important, is read, share, uh, share the stories that we publish, especially from our writers in Gaza. Get that to your friends, to your family. Let them hear firsthand from people instead of hearing from all these, pardon my French, bullshitters on uh, on cable news. Uh, uh, like and subscribe to the live stream on YouTube. Follow us on social media. That's one thing. The second thing, sign up for our mailing list there on the top left of the website. You see it says Get Updates. That's really important when we're talking about social media censorship because no matter what happens, uh, if Elon Musk decides he doesn't want us on Twitter anymore, we can still contact you. We can still make sure you get our one email a day with all our headlines in it. And the third thing is, if you can, please make a donation because that's how all this work that you see is funded. Everything you see is funded by people like you who say, I'm going to support this. And we don't like to ask for, for support. It's I, I much prefer to be spending my time doing the reporting, but that's what it takes. And the fact is, in the month of December, uh, that's the, the, the time of the year when we raise most of the resources we need for the whole of the coming year. And that's more true now than ever because uh, we're doing so much more coverage. So if you can, if you've got $10, $50, $100. I'm not going to put an upper limit on it. If you have uh, a lot of money lying around, you don't know what to do with, this is a good investment. Uh, and you can just go to electronicintifada.net and click the Donate Now button. And, and that's the way to do it. Uh, and, um, and, that, and, and that's what keeps us going. And again, I just want to also say, again, thank you to all our friends and supporters for all your messages of support. We don't have all the time we want in order to be able to reply to everyone, but we try, but we just want you to know we feel it and we convey it to our friends and colleagues in Gaza who uh, who are so in, uh, heartened and reassured by the support they're seeing around the world. So thanks very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you, Tamara, uh, again, behind the scenes, doing brilliant work as always. Um, and of course, to John, Asa, Abdul-Jawad, and I'll just Ali. say, sorry, yeah. Laura, sorry to interrupt. I just saw in the comments that someone says, 
uh, and you pay your reporters, right? Oh, yeah. I think that's an important point to emphasize. Yes, we do. We pay all our reporters. We pay all our reporters in Gaza. We pay our reporters everywhere. And uh, and and we pay we pay them with funds that people like you donate to us, and we're absolutely committed to that and to making sure that our our reporters and colleagues in Gaza have the resources they need to uh, look after themselves and their families as best as they can under these circumstances. Yeah, indeed. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, everybody uh, watching and listening. And we will be back next time. Take care, everyone.